Welcome to the Modern Intimacy Podcast, a show about mental health, sex, relationships, education, how-tos, and those private things we need to talk about more publicly with no restrictions. I'm your host, Dr. Kate Balistrieri. As a licensed psychologist, certified sex therapist, and certified sex addiction therapist, I know that mental health is directly tied to the quality of our relationships and our sex lives. I am passionate in my desire to smash stigmas about both and shine a light on relationship and societal issues that may be negatively affecting us. During this podcast, I will also give you practical answers and insights to questions you're asking about or have been hoping to solve. We should all have fulfilled, happy lives, erasing shame and stigmas and building healthy connections. Let's do that by getting curious together. Thanks for joining me. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Modern Intimacy Podcast. Today, I'm really excited to have with me Dr. Salman Aziz Mirza. He is a psychiatrist who is triple board certified in psychiatry, child and adolescent psychiatry, and addiction medicine, and one of my favorite content creators on TikTok as the Kicks Shrink. So thank you so much, Salman, for joining me today. I've been really excited to talk with you a little bit about so many things, media and the mental health. And also, I understand you're doing something like a ketamine treatment. So maybe we can talk a little bit about that in a bit. Yep, definitely. Thanks, yeah. Kate, for having me on the show. So super excited to be here. With you. Yeah, thank you again. Um, can you tell my listeners a little bit about your background, how you got into this work and what you're really passionate about? I'm a psychiatrist. I'm based out of Northern Virginia. I am I'm triple boarded. So adult psychiatry, child adolescent psychiatry and addiction medicine. Um, my main job is working with a local hospital system over here, mostly with children and adolescents. I do work at a partial hospitalization program. Um, so it's kind of an in-between between outpatient and inpatient work, which has been, I think, really helpful and it's really great. And also I do outpatient work uh, with children and adolescents primarily. And then my private practice is based purely with adults with a major focus like on ADHD, autism, addictions, and then we do like the ketamine treatments, the spravato, the intranasal S-ketamine uh, for treatment-resistant depression. Really interesting. So when you are working with folks who are experiencing depression and they're looking for alternative solutions, what mm-hmm. makes them a good candidate for ketamine? Yeah, so esketamine, the FDA approval for it is for treatment-resistant depression. And treatment-resistant depression, it kind of is this, it's a wonky term because when people hear treatment-resistant depression, it means like, oh, nothing works for you, or you're somebody who cannot get better. And that's an incorrect kind of assumption from what the word is. Treatment-resistant means is that the things that have been tried for you, whether it's medication or therapy or other treatments, have not been effective or have not produced essentially uh, remission in the symptoms. So basically your scores, your scores, quote unquote, because we know that depression is more than just numbers on a paper, um, that hasn't gone down. It really kind of varies, you know, insurance to person, to all these kind of differences between what is treatment resistant. So for certain insurances, we have to play this game. Um, it can be two failed medication trials, and that can make somebody quote unquote, treatment resistant. Um, so typically when I'm getting patients, they've failed or not, again, not failed, but they've had multiple, multiple medication trials. They've been on like dozens of medications, 
dozens of combinations of medications and things just haven't been as effective. They haven't been doing as well as they could be doing. And that's when they become a treatment or a potential candidate for something like Spravato. Does someone have to wait until they've been in that uh, high acuity state for so long before they can try this treatment? Typically, because again, like we, when we play the insurance game and we're going through the FDA approvals and everything like that, they want to see the, that there have been trials of different medications. Um, so, you know, one of the things that I, my content is about is kind of my frustrations with the healthcare system and insurances and dealing with it and all the roadblocks that come up with it. So I have to have documented proof of like, you know, these multiple, multiple failed trials. I need to show the doses that they were on, how long they were on it, what was the effects that occurred or what was the effects that didn't occur so that we can qualify this as a, again, quote unquote, failed trial. So that's the issue that kind of like pops up a lot is like, how do we prove what this is um, to get insurance approval? Now we have a lot of these kind of ketamine clinics that are popping up, um, which are not FDA approved. What I always kind of say is these are other docs who are, you know, making IV bags of ketamine and using that um, for depression treatments. So those ones, again, since they're out of insurance, they're usually cash pay clinics that works a little bit differently. You don't necessarily need to kind of go down that whole route. So it just depends on how you want to approach it. I think that's a really important um, factor to consider. Of course, you know, people's resources can impact their access to care so profoundly and in a way that's so frustrating um, because thinking about where we started this conversation, this language of treatment resistant depression, it carries such a negative connotation. And the folks who need care the most are often left with the residue of feeling shamed because of the language that we use and the barriers to care. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's one of the major issues. One of the things that like I when I talk with my patients, it's that, you know, we, we see this kind of discourse that's out there on social media. They're like, oh, we're trying to destroy the DSM and we want to get rid of labels and all that stuff. I was like, the DSM is when we talk about what it was meant to be, it was meant to be a tool, a research guideline booklet so that clinicians can communicate with each other so that when you and I, for example, talk about a patient or a client and we say, I have a patient with generalized anxiety disorder, boom, I have an idea, a framework in my mind of like, what's kind of the situation that's going on. The DSM is not meant to be read. It's not like a book that we pick up on the weekend for like light reading and we're like, oh, let's check it out and see what's going on. And this is the psychiatrist Bible and we're just classifying people into checkboxes. No, that's not what it's meant to be at all. That's not what the interpretation has been. And that's kind of when we've opened up the world and we can, when you can buy the DSM on Amazon and we can download the app, that's what happens then is because everybody gets access to it and they're like, they're misinterpreting how it's supposed to be. And so these terms that are there, these words are there, the language that's there in mental health, it's so, you know, it's a constant struggle of mine. You know, when we say things like, oh, the weather is being bipolar or my, you know, my OCD is acting up and these words have meaning, right? They <laughs> and they're do. not just, they're, they're not meant to be just be kind of tossed around. And that's just how, again, this it just comes into the lexicon and, and, and our language every day, day to day. So I really appreciate you bringing that up. I think it, the DSM sort of took on a life of its own because it, it was meant to be a, a shorthand, right? A, a, a utility for providers to understand clinically what people might be experiencing. Of course, there's great 
diversity, even within people who identify with certain clusters of symptoms. You know, one person might have three of the 10 symptoms required. Other people might have a different three or seven or something of that sort. So I think we really do run into this permeation and uh, conflation of this tool into how we make meaning in our lives and how we construct identity and then how we talk about ourselves and other people. And sometimes I think that gets really dicey, especially in the media when we're talking about mental health. And you made a a really astute post the other day on TikTok talking about why it's so important for journalists not to talk about methods of suicide. And since we're talking about depression, I wonder... uh, Let's talk a little bit about that. You know, what, what kind of expectations should we have for journalists who are trying to educate the public on mental health? Yeah, and I, these are there's very well established kind of guidelines for reporting on suicide. Um, you know, there's a lot of the language. One of the things, you know, first kind of thing that we try to do is say we're trying to get rid of the word "commit suicide," right? We're trying yes. that phrase of committing suicide um, to change it into "died by suicide," um, just because we're trying to alleviate that aspect of morality, that sin that's there, that crime aspect, you know, like, you know, I'm a Muslim, um, you know, I say this and like, there is this aspect where, you know, in Islam, uh, they say that like, you know, Islam or that suicide is the sin, right? And, and this is a, this is a thing that's there in other religions as well, not just Islam is that like, it's a sin to commit suicide. Um, so once we remove that kind of language of commit suicide, we take that aspect out of it, and we kind of, again, when we're reporting it, we're not supposed to be reporting with bias or other things that are out there. So when we say they die by suicide, you've taken that sin aspect out of it, that morality as out of it. That's one thing. The other thing that we know is that when we talk about means and stuff, we don't talk about those things, right? Um, this is, you know, one of the reasons that the show 13 Reasons Why was so kind of controversial a few years ago was because you know the main character's suicide was graphically kind of displayed. Um, and what we saw, the research that was out there, you saw the Google trends, all the searches, the um, inpatient kind of admissions and emergency room visits, they all spiked after the premiere. Um, and there was very much like, oh, we're, we're seeing copycats because there is a, such a thing as a suicide contagion. So when people are exposed to suicide, hearing about somebody else's suicide, learning about means it's really difficult because it puts the mind and puts the idea into somebody's mind who may not have had that idea before there was a thread that i saw like on twitter you know and again we can kind of talk about it but like something about um pulling something from amazon there was somebody was buying something you know i gonna i don't want to give too much details but there was a common ingredient that you could find on amazon and food prep and they were selling it at like bulk quantities, again, for people who are, um, again, using it for food prep, right? And it's a very common, innocuous kind of thing. But when taken in larger amounts, it's potentially, it's fatal. It's a fatal substance. Because it's not meant to be done that like that, just like kind of Tylenol and we know those things. So what was showing up, the algorithm that was kind of showing up from Amazon was also people were buying this and then the suggested items that show up on Amazon we're like part of like a suicide kit essentially. Um, so like, how do you do this? And what are other things you need for this? That those are things that are automatically just from the algorithm popping up and showing up there. So people were like, we need to pull this. Amazon is promoting suicide and all these things. And the threat itself kind of, again, it, it showed this whole thing. So again, we've put this idea out there. Like, so somebody who may not be thinking about it 
now it's out there. <laughs> so again, we're putting those thoughts there that may not have been there. Right, right. And I, I think for a lot of folks who experience the level of um, hopelessness and desperation that comes mm-hmm. with being in that state of mind, uh, when they hear things about what means might exist, it, it actually can provide them with a sense of hope, which allows just enough activation for movement yeah. sometimes. And we don't want to create a situation where that's the activation, right? We want activation toward resolution, toward help, toward community. Yeah. And it's one of the things that like when we, when I talk to people about it, you know, when I ask, again, this part of my job is talking with people who are suicidal on a you know daily basis. One of the things that people say is I wouldn't know how to do it. Right. And then, or a lot of times we know that things like you know, we'll say it again, overdoses a lot of times don't work, right? Um, because of these situations as people, we have, we see a lot of failed suicide attempts, which is again, what we want to see in a way mm-hmm. we do. We don't want to see completed suicides. We, we, we don't, we'd rather not see them, but if, you know, we don't want to see the failed ones, but still we'd rather see a failed attempt than a completed attempt. Absolutely. One of the times where failure is the ideal. That's what, that's what we want. <laughs> yes. Well, in your work, you know, you work with children, adolescents, and adults. And what are you seeing in terms of trends around depression, anxiety, ADHD? There's a lot mm-hmm. of buzz on social media about ADHD um, and autism, and of course, yeah. anxiety and depression. I'm really curious about what what lands for you in reality. Everything is kind of kicked up, and <laughs> I think that's kind of across the board. Um, everything is kind of kicked up. Um, and I kind of joke about it in a way, or, or I say when I'm working with like med students or other students, I was like, if you want job security for life, go into the mental health field. Uh, you will, ha- you, you'll never be able to meet the demand by what's out there. You know, everybody is booked up for months or filled out for a reason, right? And it's because there is such that huge demand that's there. And when COVID occurred, it just exacerbated it. You know, we we were already in a situation where we knew that we were going to be behind. We knew there was a mental health shortage that was looming. And then COVID just turned it up to, to 12, right? Essentially, that's what occurred. So when I hear things like, oh, ADHD and autism, the whole neurodivergence kind of coming up a little bit more, I think there is a, a kind of two-pronged reason for why this is happening. Um, one is that there's greater awareness that these things exist. Um, and though, and there's also then greater communication between people. So things like social media have created and fostered these communities of people, abilities for people to talk to each other and to say, huh, I, I identify some of these things within myself. Is this what I'm going through? And, you know, there's been kind of like the pros and cons and pushbacks, people being like, um, you know, within the community of like psychiatrists and things like, oh, I'm so sick of seeing like, Oh, these 40-year-old people who think they're autistic. And why are, why does every adult think they have like ADHD now? And the reality is, is that 20 years ago, 30 years ago, they wouldn't have fit that criteria, right? They wouldn't have fit with the criteria of what autism was or what ADHD might have been. Because we know that again, we're going back to the DSM a little bit, the definitions, the diagnostic criteria changed. 2013 with the DSM-5 was a landmark uh kind of change. It, it really broadened what these definitions were. And I think that was due to kind of realizing that 
people are not homogenous, right? People are diverse. They have this spectrum, these spectrum disorders that are there and that things look different. So, you know, it's one of those things where I can look at it, you know, with my, with my 40 year old eyes now and say, you know, my dad was probably, is probably autistic, right? He was always, you know, he's an engineer. He was, you know, he's, he hits all all those things like even when we're like with family stuff he likes to kind of hang out by himself he's really content to like just be hanging out at home there's a lot of things that kind of hit those boxes but he's an engineer he can talk he's you know he has a job he's a wife you know he's you know, my mom and my sister you know he's got a family all these things and he wouldn't have fit what that definition of autism was you know 50 60 years ago um so that's one of the things adhd as well similar kind of thing is when we were forced to change how we do work, right? So ADHD is more so it's the neurodivergence aspect where it's spec the broad spectrum where it is more than just attention, more than just focus. We're designed, kind of we're trained, we're educated to work a certain way, to function a certain way. And when COVID disrupted all of that, it really kind of, again, shined that light that like, hey, these adaptations or that inability to adapt to kind of this change really kind of brought this to light. And that's always when we see, you know, during my training is when we're evaluating for ADHD, it's those transition years. So the transition years, especially like in kids and adolescents. So kids, we always look at that kindergarten to first grade jump, that third grade to fifth, fourth grade jump, because that's when we shift from learning to read to uh to reading to learn. And that's when that kind of shows up that third grade around that time. Middle, you know, elementary to middle school, middle school to high school, college, et cetera, et cetera. That's when, you know, those transition occurs. That's when those differences, whatever they may be, really start to show up. So for a lot of late in life, later in life adults who are recognizing that something is different for them, something feels yeah. uh, like they didn't have this information before, or they didn't have these experiences that they're having. You're saying that COVID-19 really brought such a, a big and pivotal transition for everyone. Um, yep. But it, it shined a light on ways that they had been adapting and the structures in place that were no longer there to support the way that people worked and yep. or the added demands that were now on their plate really resulted in a big transition that brought to light areas where they were functioning differently. Yep, absolutely. And that's that's the major thing is, again, that we were, we were forced to this transition. Some people did well with it. Some people, a lot of people really, really struggled with it and people who were getting by weren't able to just get by anymore. So that's yeah. why we see this rise in it and going from there. Interesting. So when when people are talking about their neurodivergent experiences um, online, I mean, I've just seen a plethora of conversations shoot yeah. up in social media, and it's been really fascinating to look at the aha moments and the ways that people yeah. are understanding how their brain is developed and the reasons for it. And I, I look at um, so many folks having questions around the difference between the origin being related to neurological issues or environmental issues such as trauma. And I'm curious about how you look at conditions like CPTSD around neurodivergence in contrast with ADHD or autism and how you make sense of, you know, the nuances there. Yeah. And it, it kind of comes back to my philosophy on, again, like psychiatry and diagnosis and DSM and stuff is that it's life isn't, you know, humanity isn't just nice little boxes, nice little check boxes, right? And 
we have this kind of spectrum of what's going on. So when I talk to people and they say things like, oh, I think I have ADHD because I have trouble focusing. And I was like, well, it's it's a little bit more than just I have trouble focusing, right? That doesn't make you have ADHD. Trouble focusing or trouble with concentrating is a symptom of depression, is a symptom of anxiety, a symptom of ADHD, a symptom of, symptom of AD, autism, symptom of so many things, schizophrenia as well. Trauma as well, right? Of course. Um, so there's that aspect where we say then, this is where we have, you know, this is where I get my money's worth is when you spend that time with me is like, we're going to spend the time and see how did this kind of play out over the course of your lifetime and kind of create this timeline, this chron- chronology to say, is it this or that? And then at the same time, doesn't matter what name we put on it. Doesn't matter that like, hey, we're calling it ADHD or we're, we're calling it autism. Doesn't matter that we're calling it complex PTSD or or whatever it can be, because we're still going to treatment wise, whether whether it's going to be medications, therapy, combination, or something else, you know, anything else that it can be, we're still going to do something for whatever the issue is that brought you to my office. I think that's a really important point. And it's something that I talk with clients about all the time. How does this label or that label help you make sense of who you are and help yeah. you make sense of what you're experiencing and what your options are for addressing it if that's something you choose to do. Yeah. And often it comes back down to stigma or yeah. fear or some denial, especially for folks who maybe are having a hard time wrapping their minds around trauma that they experienced when they were younger, or maybe they don't have the verbal and conscious memories to understand the trauma that happened to them when they were younger. So it's a little bit more challenging and they often find diagnoses like ADHD, something that they can digest. Um, And I'm not saying that they have to think of it in a different way at all, but when we break it down and really look at how someone chooses a label based on the language that's available in in the ether, um, it's kind of curious to think about what what we're assigning to the labels in terms of worthiness and prognosis. Yeah, and I I get this a lot because well, again, like I've been seeing a lot of people who are older in life, adult people who are coming in for autism diagnoses um, or kind of evaluations. And I always kind of asked them in the last like end of the end of the evaluation, I was like, well, what do you hope to kind of get out of this? What is kind of your takeaway? Because like, we can't go back in time. I can't like give you this diagnosis at five years old. And then we've have all this slew of potential services or accommodations and schooling that are different, right? What are you hoping to kind of get from this? I can give you the diagnosis. Again, I can write a letter that says, hey, you have autism, but what? Now, what do we do with that? Yeah, and that's I think the next say? step. Yeah, it it really it really varies. Some people are just like you know, well, this kind of provides a source of validation and gives me a better understanding that like this is some of where my struggles were, some of the traumatic events that occurred. You know, we can say, mm-hmm. hey, you maybe you had autism, right? Maybe you had it, and then your inability to kind of connect with people, or you know, some of the bullying that you may have experienced during your schooling, the trauma that was associated with that, compounded with the autism all these things kind of layered on top of each other. And this is maybe why you're presenting to me for depression, anxiety, whatever else it may be. Troubles with like, you know, attention and focus on top of your autism, potential autism that's there. We know that there's a huge comorbidity between autism and ADHD. I think it's like 40, 50% or something like that. Um, So again, these struggles with um, having jobs afterwards, maintaining jobs, struggles in schools, academics, 
life-wise, going through multiple divorces, et cetera, these things all show up and they all have a reason. So being able to sometimes, like you were saying, give that diagnosis, it gives them a better a way for them to frame it, understand and say, okay, I understand maybe why this was happening, but now what do we do? <laughs> it's like, but yeah. now what do we do? How do, how do we adjust with this? Absolutely. Yeah. For some people, really understanding the why can feel so empowering for how to move forward. And for other folks, it can feel really debilitating. And so I think wherever someone is in their own conceptualization of themselves, their behaviors, their struggles, their strengths, I think there's it's really important to emphasize that you get to be in exploration of that coming from multiple perspectives all the time. Yeah. I had I had a patient who I did this with recently. And it was an interesting reaction because he was like, he was like, I don't want this. <laughs> he, he was like, I don't want this diagnosis because this means there's something wrong with me. And I was like, well, let's let's reframe the conversation. Let's talk about it differently. There's nothing, again, nothing wrong with you. It's just things are different. And it's it's the same that aspect of like, I can give you the diagnosis, but what do we, again, how do we kind of move from there and how we accept that? And again, just exactly what you were saying, where, where they're at and where they want to kind of where they're at in their life. So, yeah. So you and your, your partner recently had a baby, right? Yes. Yep. yep. Congratulations. <laughs> number, number four. Number <laughs> so, four. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. Well, congratulations. What is it like to be um, present for number four? What's different um, as a parent with your fourth child versus your first child. And I'm, I'm so curious coming from the mind of a psychiatrist who studies child and adolescent behavior. So what, what are yeah. some of the observations that you have? It's the biggest kind of adjustment is we had, you know, I had my first three in my residency and my fellowship. Um, so that was its own kind of challenge. We had them like kind of, you know, right over the span of those two and a half, three years. So it was, you know, they're from the first to the third, they were, so what does that make them? Twenty something, thirty-six-ish months apart, or something like that. So they were bam, 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 right, all out there. Um, we had our hands full for sure. It was definitely very hard to be, um, be learning to become a doctor. Um, you know, becoming learning how to be a psychiatrist, and then having all of that there as well. It's one of those things where you like know too much sometimes as well too. Kind of with, you know, I, I really got into the aspect of like child, my child adolescent training was, you know, my son was a year and a half, and my, yeah, no, he was he was less than a year when we started that. So I got to see that um, really the early childhood stuff while we were in the training and going through there. So. We were, I just gotten used to like having these three, right? <laughs> I was doing well, and I, out there in the world, it's difficult because you know too much. You you kind of overanalyze sometimes. You look at everything. You know, there were some concerns like, "Hey, is my son like on the spectrum? He's a little bit late, and is he like a little bit late in talking? Do we have to go down this pathway of like getting every evaluation and test done?" And X, Y, and Z. My wife is a nurse, um, so she has that medical kind of background as well. Um, it's not like she's more into like the ortho and trauma and neuro 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 stuff, but still like she's got a background in in in, the, in medicine. Um, so that was the hardest part. You know, my daughter, my first daughter, number two, she had meningitis when she was like two months old. Mm-hmm. So again, that was the other. You know, and I'm running back and forth still between fellowship and going to the hospital and going here and there, running to see the kids. So like 
that freakiness of like all these things are occurring at the same time. And then number three was kind of like a little accident we call her, but she, you know, she wasn't supposed to be here, but we love her still. Um, um, <laughs> so we had just kind of got used to like, you know, so, you know, having now they're eight, seven and five, the eldest three, when number four came along. And it's really interesting to see how they interact with each other. Um, how they interact with the youngest one, how excited they were for the youngest one as well, um, the new one that came around. And then also just like, we also, it's it's interesting because everyone's like, oh, you must be a great parent because you're in a child adolescent psychiatrist. And I think like every mental health provider, we don't take our own advice, right? Oh, <laughs> well, some of it. <laughs> some of it, some of it, right? Uh, no, there's definitely stuff that I'm like, oh, I, I look back and I'm like, man, I should have been doing this differently. Mm-hmm. I should have been treating my son differently. I shouldn't be saying these things because at the end of the day, like I turn my brain off from work stuff when I come home. Um, and then sometimes like, maybe I should keep it on a little bit longer, right? That patience that's kind of there. Um, but it's, it's really interesting too, because part of the reason I got into the field was we had, um, you know, my, my wife and I, we had a friend or a couple, um, they had a son who is like that that level three autism. So a kiddo who has again, nonverbal troubles with intellectual disability, all these things. And he, we were able to see like his development. I think he was born when I was like still in med school. And so I, we got to see his development and we got to see the diagnosis. We got to see everything. And that's what kind of one of the things that really pushed me into the field to be like, I want to work with kids like this. I want to work with this population of kids to see what I can do to help out. So there is that piece where you're like, I got young ones. I'm in the field. I have like, you know, my wife is one of six kids. There's 14, now 15 little nephews, cousins that are there, nephews and nieces in, in like our little area. So I'm seeing everybody kind of their development and, you know, over the past 10 ish years almost. Um, so it's really, it's really interesting. But then everyone comes to me and is like, oh, can you help me and fix this too? And I was like, maybe, maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What advice would you give to new parents on, walking that line of being concerned and and not being over concerned when they think that something might be going on with their children that uh, developmentally you know might be something they want to look at yeah i think it's it's better to just get it checked out no matter what um you know i i i get more concerned for people who are under concerned right i think that's the biggest issue is we see this a lot of times when people, when parents will say things like, if there's a late diagnosis for, again, and I don't mean like late diagnosis, like 40, I'm talking about later diagnosis, like maybe teenage years or 17, 16 years old, where I'll do the evaluation for like anxiety, depression, they may come to me after like, again, a failed suicide attempt. And then we sit down, we do an evaluation and for like the partial hospitalization program. And it's like, you've had ADHD all this time. This is all due to your ADHD that nobody's kind of seen. And the thing that strikes me a lot is the parents will say things like, how could I have missed this? How, how did I never know? I wish I had seen this. I wish I could have done things differently. Or they'd be like, you know, I, somebody, a teacher, had, I remember a teacher had said something one time and then I never, I kind of dismissed it. Or I never really followed up on it. So that's what gets me more concerned. Because again, the people, when they kind of dismiss things that people bring up or they kind of minimize potential concerns, it's better sometimes to be a little bit more concerned and, and just get it kind of get checked out a little bit. So trust your gut, right? There is that always that parental kind of gut that like something feels a little bit off, something doesn't feel quite right. Let's investigate. 
I really appreciate you saying that. And I agree a hundred percent. I think sometimes parents fears and, and just a disclosure, I'm not a parent, so I don't really know what it's like to live that. Um, but as a spectator and someone who works with many people's children, I think, and many parents, yeah. I, I think that it's, it's really hard to live in a space of fear around, are my kids okay? And so often I think unconsciously, a lot of parents will minimize symptoms or minimize things that they could be concerned about, or in hindsight, wish they would have been concerned about, because it's really scary to imagine that something might be going on for your child that requires more maintenance. And then of course, there's always sort of the uh, unfortunate overcoupling of worthiness and um, perceived competence and and whatnot um, that comes with a lot of stigma carried with different diagnoses. So I think a lot of parents don't want to think about their child having a life that might come with some of that. So, you know, there's a lot of mental gymnastics that get in the way of people taking proactive action, but I agree, you know, get, get it looked out and, and, and try to stay on top of it. Because when I work with adults who do recognize in hindsight, nobody paid attention to this glaring behavioral concern. Um, One of the things that they say most often is, I really wish my parents would have validated this or acknowledged this or helped me look at this sooner. Why didn't anyone do that? Yeah. And that's, that's again, a very common thing that I hear is like, I, you know, like, or, and I see this too, because we know with neurodivergence, things like autism, ADHD, there's high family comorbidities. And, you know, they'll often say like, oh, I had a sibling that had it worse, quote unquote worse, right? And they got all the attention and because they were a more severe case and mine was more moderate or mild, I was seen as like, oh, I'm the good one. I'm okay. But still your struggles are still valid. Whatever they're going through, the struggles that are still there, like those are still happening just because they may be again, quote unquote, a little bit better than what somebody else is doing or what there's somebody else in the family is doing, it doesn't mean that it's still an issue. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Well, for folks listening who are curious about kind of their own process, right. And their, and their own experience or questions around whether they might be experiencing neurodivergence, what would you recommend as a starting point for them? I think the biggest thing is getting in touch with somebody in the mental health field. All right. I think we all know, hopefully we all know somebody, whether that's a therapist, um, counselor, something else. And, you know, or even just your primary care doctor or something like that, just to be like, hey, I'm concerned about X, Y, and Z. What more can I do? You know, there is, again, the burgeoning online community, which is has its pros and cons. Um, We can definitely find some things that are helpful that are there. Um, getting a little bit more information, researching again, Wikipedia is pretty good. Uh, you know, it's been, they've edited it a lot so that it's pretty good content that's there reading through it, reading through experiences and kind of seeing if you identify with things. And then again, bringing your concerns to the professional for an evaluation. You know, I, the things that I say is like, when people talk about self-diagnosis and the issues that come along with self-diagnosis, if it puts you in front of somebody to kind of say, hey, let's talk with a professional about it and get like, see if this is a real thing or not, then self-diagnosis is okay. If you're going to say, hey, I read, I saw a TikTok video and I identified with one thing that was there and now I have autism or ADHD or borderline personality disorder, X, Y, whatever it may be, that's where the problem kind of comes in. But gets you in front of somebody like you, somebody like me, totally fine. And then let us, let us do our job a bit. 
Yeah, I really, I really resonate with that. It's, it's sometimes the only thing that people see is a TikTok or a post on Instagram, or they've read a tweet somewhere and it connects with them so deeply. And finally, I think they find resonance and there's an enthusiasm in that. Yeah. Um, because for a long time, I think many folks struggle without language and without enough context or construct to know what's going on. So they they hold on to something that gives them meaning, but there's a lot of risk in not investigating that further with a professional. Not that yeah. uh, a professional is going to tell you that you're wrong about your experience, but your experience might have a different um a different origin or a different treatment regimen or a different uh, label, you know, for lack right. of a better term, that might give you different meaning and different yeah. options. Yeah. And I bring myself up kind of all as like an example of that, right? So I'm somebody I've been open and saying that like I have ADHD, I'm a, I am a later diagnosis in life. And this was like when I was out of fellowship after I was like, you know, an MD for however many years that I was like, it was kind of a self-realization. I was like, oh my God, I've been doing all these evaluations for people and checkboxing and all the symptoms that are there and being like, yeah, you have ADHD probably. And then I was like, wait a second, this is my life too. Mm -hmm. And so even for me, the professional who specializes in this, it took me 34, 35 years to kind of get to that point to say like, oh, this is the thing that I'm dealing with as well. And then when I kind of apply it to like my my life in retrospect, um, I'm, I see how it touched so many different things. You know, my credit score was crap uh, for a long time. I had like a 500 something credit score because, you know, the classic ADH thing of like, oh, I'll pay this bill later. And mm -hmm. when it's time to pay the bill later, it's gone. It's too late, right? This is before the time of like auto pay, but it was, it was like the first thing you do when you open up a credit card or anything like that. Um, or things like when I, you know, like a part of my journey is I failed out of dental school because I thought, you know, I could just like do an all-nighter for all these exams the night before, like I did in high school and, and undergrad. Um, and you can't do that with that much information. So that's something, again, when looking back in life, I was like, my life could have been very, very different if I had been, this had been kind of recognized um, or treated much earlier. Yeah, I so appreciate you sharing that. It it really is so important to like give ourselves a tremendous amount of compassion and to consult with people around us who are skilled to evaluate these different kinds of conditions because we all have blind spots and we yeah. all have different motivations uh, on how to get through this crazy thing called life. And so sometimes we we can't see the forest for the trees when it's our own story. But that's one of the interesting reasons why there's so much research in the research for folks yeah. who are involved in these professions, the helping professions. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. This was a really um, informative and lovely conversation for folks yeah. who want to work with you or follow you on social media. Where can they reach you? Yeah. So I have um, my, my main thing is TikTok um, and on Instagram. I started a YouTube channel recently as well, where I'm doing you know, some podcasting and interviewing as well. Um, and I'm really enjoying that aspect of it too. I think this is like a great thing because we get to, and mine is a little more to kind of say, hey, let's talk about psychiatrists and other mental health people as like human beings as well and seeing what else they're doing um but so that's one of the things it's all under the nick uh the name the kick shrink so t the kicks k-i-c-k-s uh and shrink s-h-r-i-n-k the name comes from my love of sneakers because one of the best things about being a doctor was finally being able to 
by all the sneakers that I was deprived of when I was a kid. Um, so that's one of the, that's, that's where the name come from. People think it's sometimes they read it quick and they're like, Oh, it's the kink shrink. I was like, no, 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 not, we're not, we're not that, we're not that one. <laughs> that's, that's, that's maybe somebody else, but not me. That's maybe a different channel. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe a different channel. Maybe my yeah, channel. So, yeah. Well, which is all good. So, um, yeah, I had, um, I, I just had Dr. Rena Malek, who's like a huge on YouTube, um, you know, huge, like over a million sub you know, link followers on YouTube. And she's a urologist, does a lot of talk about sexual health. Um, so that was like a really, you know, it's super important when we talk about sexual health and mental health and, and overall health in general. So these things are very much, you know, intimately intertwined, pun intended, perhaps. So. Yeah, great. All right. Well, thank you again. I really appreciate your time. And thanks everyone for listening to this episode. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Modern Intimacy Podcast. On Instagram, follow me at Dr. Kate Balistrieri and at The Modern Intimacy. On TikTok, check me out at Dr. Kate Balistrieri and on Twitter at Kate Balistrieri. Everyone has questions about mental health, sex, and relationships. Send yours to me via DM on Instagram or email them to questions at modernintimacy.com and I'll answer some at the end of each episode. Visit the website modernintimacy.com to schedule a consultation with a member of our team or to sign up for our newsletter. Let's meet back here next week. New episodes air every Tuesday. Reminder, this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only and is not a substitute for mental health services. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.